Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting in the luxurious corner booth in Lourdes, France, still in the French Catholic Cafe. Robert Hutton joining me as co-host. This is a wonderful pilgrimage we've been on so far. We've met lots of interesting people. It's been great, but Lourdes never can be bad, Deacon Jeff. The guests here are, have been phenomenal. We have a, a wonderful person uh, with us today. This is Father Eric Hollis, and he's a Benedictine priest of St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota, and he works at St. John's University in Collegeville. Father Eric, you are a medieval scholar, are you not? I am indeed, yeah. I think that's the first medieval scholar we've had here, Robert, is it not? I, I do, but there are probably not too many medieval scholars in the country, are well, there? Well, I imagine it's hard to pay the bills at that point. Yeah. No, actually, there's quite a lot. And one of the things I used to do during this very first week of May was to go to a medieval conference at Kalamazoo, Michigan, Western Michigan University. 3,000 people would gather there. So there's more of us than you would think. So the 3,000 medieval scholars in the Probably United more States. than that. Yeah. Those are the ones who could afford to go to the conference. Was there a lot of chanting and whatnot going on? Or oh, a little bit of everything, because <laughs> medieval studies is kind of the, the last ditch for um, people who want to do liberal arts and don't want to make a choice. You can do literature. You can do music. You can do calligraphy. Sword fighting. Sword fighting, there is that. Uh, the most don't approve of that. Okay. But, yes, we understand. But the Society for Creative Anachronism does the sword okay. fighting. There you and go. And the jousting with telephone poles. Oh, okay. Of which you are not a member. I am not a member of that very group. Good. All right, very Never good. Never will be. Yes, we, we, we probably wouldn't have you as a guest if you were, but that's a whole other issue. Yes. That's another show altogether. <laughs> But, Father Eric, this love of all things medieval really has led you into this very interesting project that you have at St. John's that is really quite phenomenal and the first in like 500 years or something that's going on here. Tell us about the St. John's Bible. What are you guys doing there? With the St. John's Bible, we hired a man named Donald Jackson who's described to the Queen of England, and we asked him to create a handwritten, illuminated, meaning pictures, monumental, meaning great big, Bible. And no Benedictine institution, no great cathedral or church has commissioned something like this in about 500 years. Well, I know that uh, we all have these images. We've all seen the movies, right? And mm-hmm. we've all seen these monks in candlelight handwriting the Bible, right? Because there weren't printing presses way back when. And, and right. so obviously when printing presses came to be, the idea of using the hand to create a Bible like this kind of went out the window. Is that essentially what happened? It did. Technology, well, the book arts are among the most conservative of the art forms, but when the printing press came along, that technology replaced the tradition of handwritten books almost overnight. Relatively speaking, it happened so quickly. Because it was cheaper. It was cheaper. It was efficient. You could crank out a lot of copies, but it also reflected a time of growing literacy in the Western world. Before that, you know, in the 11th century, it wouldn't have mattered because not that many people read, read. And so you didn't need to crank out a million copies of something. No one would buy them. <laughs> By the 16th century, their literacy was high, and there was a market for lots of books. So the printing press answered a need, uh, and technology came to the rescue. So you guys decided it was time to take this lost art up again. Right. Now, obviously, a lot of people would look at the Catholic Church always going to the past and mm-hmm. you know, these old creeds that we keep saying, and we mm-hmm. never can kind of become very modern. And you look at this thing and you think, well, why are we going backwards? But do you really 
see this as something going backwards, or are we looking forwards? Uh, well, you, it's going backwards and it's looking forwards at the same time. Uh, once upon a time, sort of the prime act of civilization was to make a book. And for a medieval monastery or a medieval cathedral, kind of the, the epitome of Christian civilization was to make a handwritten Bible. And we stopped doing that about 500 years ago, but our, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters continue to do that. All Torah scrolls are still made by hand. You cannot go down to the Torah's R Us store and buy a, uh, <laughs> print, a printout or Xerox, a Torah scroll, and take it to your synagogue. So we decided to do this partly as a recreation of what it once meant to be civilized uh, and also to experience what Jews still celebrate in, in an average synagogue. So we thought if Jews can do this as part and parcel of Jewish life, Christians ought to be able to do it once every 500 years and no one should get hurt. Now, a lot of people also accuse Catholics of being not very well-versed in the Bible and, and not a very biblical faith. Did that have play into your, your decisions uh, there at St. John's to be involved in this project? It did. We had a lot of reasons for doing this, the, probably the most significant of which was we were celebrating 150 years since the foundation of the monastery in central Minnesota. Um, we wanted to do something that celebrated 150 years. We wanted to do something artistic. Uh, we didn't want to do something sort of conventional like build a building or put up a big right. monument because mm-hmm. people do that all the time. We wanted to do something that was going to be a gift to the world. And so we decided to do this Bible uh, as an expression of the importance of the Bible in Catholic life and in our life as a Benedictine monastery. We Even Catholics tend to forget that the Bible is at the core of everything we do. If you go to Mass, for example, the major prayers of the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer, are straight from the Bible. If you go to Mass regularly on Sundays and then throw in the weekdays, over a period of time, you are going to hear most of the Bible read to you through the readings, the first, second, and third, first and second readings from the Old Testament and New Testament, and then the Gospel. The Bible is at the core of our spirituality, the core of our theology. It's the daily prayer of the Church, the liturgy of the hours, morning prayer and evening prayer that the clergy and religious say. So the Bible really infuses every aspect of Catholic life, and we tend to forget that. And so by investing a lot of time and energy and money into making a Bible, it was a major statement about the importance of the Bible in our lives, not just as monks but as Catholic Christians. Well, let's talk about investing the time and the money. Let's talk about how it was made, maybe the process that was made, so we can kind of give our, well, this is a radio program, so I can't show you uh, right. any, any illustrations or illuminations, rather. Help us understand, how was this thing made? We recreated the experience of medieval bookmakers <clears throat> by uh, engaging a man named Donald Jackson, the scribe to the Queen of England, to make this Bible in the traditional ways, using vellum, uh, Vellum is calf skin, but you can use deer skin, pig skin, whatever, sheep skin. Right. We still use that term a little bit. Um, Quill pens, handmade inks, real gold leaf. Uh, And you use these traditional... uh, A quill pen, is that a goose feather? You can use a variety of feathers. Donald's favorites were goose and... Turkey quill. So you're taking a feather from a bird and dipping it in the ink and basically writing it on the skins, just like they right. did hundreds of years ago. Right. There are a few steps in between. You have to 
cut the quill and all that sort of thing. But yeah, basically you're using bird feathers on vellum to make a book. So you don't pop down to Office Depot or Staples and buy the quills and the uh, the vellum? No, no, and you don't just go out and well, where did that shoot come? a goose. Where, where, where does that come from? Uh, there are still vellum makers in the world. Uh, there are vellum factories in England and in Europe where they still use this. You know, even the Vatican, for its important documents, will use vellum. Um, Torah scrolls use vellum. Mm. So there is a market for this still. There's still it's a few places that use it in the U.S., but not many. Um, but the, important, the value of this is when you use those materials, you make something that's going to last. And I'm not talking about 100 years. You're use, making something that can last 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years. We have books like the Book of Kells, uh, that are twelve and thirteen hundred years old, and they have another twelve or thirteen hundred years in their life. So we want, in making this project, we also wanted to make a countercultural statement. Everything in our society is short term. We make buildings that are going to be torn down in twenty five years. Uh, everything that we buy in our stores has a shelf life of a year or two. Uh, the other thing is that we everything is so machine made that scarcely anything we touch, except you or me is made by a machine. So by making something by hand that's going to last 3,000 years, we're making some a big statement about the enduring value of human workmanship and the Spirit of God taking a human being to make something that's going to last and, and the inspire. Value of the Bible. Because, and the Bible. Because, you know, value if, of the it's Bible, like yeah. if it's a cheap book, then it sort of right. implies, you know, if it's $2 paperback, well, you know, mm-hmm. by... That the word is cheap, but by putting the time, the money right, into that, yeah. that's got, it shows that this is something really special, the Word of God. Right. We wanted this to last two or three or 4,000 years. Uh, we also, by making it big, which is what medieval monasteries and especially cathedrals had these very large Bibles. And you can see them today in places like England and the continent uh, or, the, or the residue of it in these great Bible stands that are bigger than people. Um, it's a statement about the importance of the Word of God in worship. So if you go into church and you see someone carrying a tiny little gospel book, it's a statement. It says this isn't Although very Although that's important. easier on the deacon, by the way. It's easier on the deacon, but if you carry in a little bitty missalette size gospel book in a church that seats 1,200, it makes a rather poor statement. If you carry in a gospel book that weighs 25 pounds and is 2 feet by 3 feet when it's open... That makes a statement, too, and that says this is really important. This is worth paying attention to even before you start reading it. That's beautiful. Now, who who made this thing? What, who physically worked on this? Donald Jackson, the scribe, had five scribes who worked with him. He was also the major illuminator and did about 75% of the illuminations, the pictures in this. He had six other artists who had been trained by him to help him. Uh, he was afraid he might not be able to sustain this. There were 165 major illuminations. He was afraid that he didn't have the talent to carry through, but he did. But he also wanted some variety. He had one Greek Orthodox icon painter to do some work just to remind us that Western Christian art doesn't have a monopoly on this. There are the Orthodox icons and that whole tradition of Byzantine art that we forget about. But it's wonderfully expressive of the spiritual and what are these? Are these pictures scenes from the different chapters of the Bible, or what are they these? are? We asked him. We had a committee at St. John's that worked with him and his team, uh, and the committee at St. John's, composed of theologians and art historians and Bible scholars, uh, decided what themes we wanted to address and what passages we wanted illuminated. 
And so they worked with him, and they would supply him a three-page reflection on a passage that we wanted him to work with. And they would suggest what it meant to the Bible writer, what it might mean to a reader today. And then he would go with it from there, run his ideas back by the committee, and after that conversation kind of played itself out, he would come up with first draft and then a final draft. Wonderful. We are going to have much more to learn about this incredible work, the St. John's Bible. We'll talk about that in just one moment after we take a break. Before we do that, I want to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you, deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And with that, we'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzymski. And this is another great moment in church history. When you think of saints, you often think of saintly qualities like patience, love, humility, and generosity. Not so with St. Jerome, a priest and doctor of the church born in the mid-4th century. On more than a few occasions, St. Jerome stood outside the church doors doing penance for his bad temper. While this was true, more than anything, he was a staunch defender of the truth and an ardent lover of the Word of God. He felt that anyone who taught error was an enemy of God to be defeated with the swift and sure strokes of his powerful pen. St. Jerome was a scholar of great wisdom and understanding. He was a master of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and he spent many years in study in the celebrated centers of scholarship like Rome and Alexandria. He was a great student of sacred learning because he realized its vital role in obtaining the beatific vision. He once said, Let us learn upon earth those things which can call us to heaven. Sometimes feared for his veracity, but always known to be a genuine man of God, St. Jerome was respected by his peers. St. Augustine said of him, What Jerome does not know, no mortal man has ever known. He was very prolific in his writings. Above all, his scriptural writings have been without equal in the history of the church. St. Jerome is most remembered for his translation of the Bible into the common or vulgar language of the people, making it more accessible to the common people. Called the Vulgate, his vigilant and meticulous translation was very popular and became the standard version of the Bible for over a thousand years. Many who question the authority of the church like to point to the fact that St. Jerome openly opposed the inclusion of the seven deuterocanonical books in the official canon of the Bible. While this is true, as he rarely held his opinions to himself, few people realize that ultimately St. Jerome recognized, upheld, and defended the authority of Holy Mother Church in defining the canon and placed the books in their rightful place in the Bible. In 402 A.D., St. Jerome wrote regarding this issue, What sin have I committed if I follow the judgment of the churches? At the end of his life, St. Jerome finally settled in Bethlehem, where he lived in a cave believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. He died there in 420 A.D. His feast day is September 30th. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe here 
welcoming again our guest, Father Eric Hollis, a Benedictine priest at St. John's Abbey. And we were just talking about how this thing, the St. John's Bible, this incredible work uh, has been made. Along mm-hmm. with Donald Jackson, there were five other scribes. Now, how did how were those selected? Where did those he scribes come from? He selected those from uh, both peers that he had worked with and a couple of people he had trained as calligraphers. Uh, the interesting thing was they all had to work with the script that he designed. So it wasn't like you had five styles at the right. end of the day. They all had to do the same font. They became his hands. They were his hands. Yeah. Uh, the irony was that they started a process whereby each m- month, at the end of the month, they would gather together, compare their work to see who had strayed. So the first time they did it, the five scribes who worked with Donald came in, and they were doing well, and they came to Donald's work, and he had strayed from the design. Interesting. So he had his, he had his hand slapped, and he had to, had to get back to basics again. Now, but, do you take those, uh, those leaves or whatever when they're, you know, the, the stray ones? Do you, do you have to destroy those? No, we don't. You don't, uh, you don't have to destroy these things. Um, the nice thing about vellum is it's wonderfully forgiving, unlike paper. Mm-hmm. You can scrape off mistakes wow. and then polish it over. And you use a tool that people still have, but they don't know what it was originally for or what it was named for, and that's a pen knife. You use your pen to cut your quill. It's a knife to cut your quill, but you also then use it to scrape mistakes really? off the vellum. And then you can polish it and write over as if nothing had ever happened. You know, happened. I've always wondered that when, when the monks were making them uh, years and years ago, if they like got to the bottom and, and uh, forgot to cross the, the T or whatever, and they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Once, yeah, and, and Donald's done several of these. They're easy to correct. Sometimes you, you, can, you can scrape the whole page if you needed to. But there were other things that medieval scribes did that Donald did, too, that were kind of imaginative. Once in a while, you want to preserve a mistake. So the first time this happened, a scribe got to the bottom of the page and realized he had accidentally left out a line. Now, you could scrape the whole thing and redo it, but Donald decided to borrow from the bag of tricks of medieval calligraphers. He wrote the missing line at the bottom of the page, drew a box around it, drew a rope with a noose around the box, and the rope goes up the side column, and at the top of the rope, a bird grabs the rope in his talons and flaps with his wings and with his beak points to the space in the column where it goes. very <laughs> interesting. And this is where he turns it into a sermon. Because for most of human history, God preferred to use the frail, fallible human hand to make his Bibles. The machine was our idea. And so Donald says this is a symbol of God's choosing us as fallible human beings to do his work in the world. If he wanted perfection, he would have made robots, but he made you and me to do his work in the world instead. That's beautiful, and uh, plus it saved him from having to redo that whole page. That's right. (laughs) And it was far more imaginative than having a perfect page. Actually, it's a perfect page. All the text of the Bible is there. It's just in unconventional order, but anybody can figure it out inside of a minute. You know, I might try that in a legal brief sometime writing right, a yeah. bird and a little noose. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, that might be interesting, by the way. One That's of the variation cases. of putting a carrot, you know, yeah. where a, a, a word was left out and you just put it in. Now, you were mentioning that uh, all these traditional techniques being used, were there also some modern techniques that were being used in producing this Bible? Not in the production of it. Uh, well, actually, there were, there were a couple of things that were modern. Uh, in some cases, there were some pieces of art that he duplicated quite a lot. So he had rubber stamps made of those, and he would stamp them sometimes in colorful ink and sometimes in gold leaf. 
That was one concession to modernity. But otherwise, it was a pretty much a recreation of a medieval experience. We asked him, however, to do this in contemporary style of art. We didn't want an antique. We didn't want to make a Romanesque Bible or a Gothic Bible because the world had plenty of those. We wanted a Bible that, exp- that reflected 21st century, uh, both 21st century art and 21st century Catholic values. And so that also meant that the themes in this Bible that you would illustrate would be different. were our issues. Uh, and every Bible reflects the issues of its time. An example, if this were the 12th century and royal authority was important, you'd emphasize pictures of King David and put the picture of your own king on the face of David. Uh, what king, themes did we do um, in, in, this, in this one, this modern uh, Concern for the poor and the oppressed. You don't go to the Book of Kings, you go to the prophets for that. The Bible is wonderful. It covers a huge amount, a huge range of themes and human emotion. And so you can find what's important for your age or your mood uh, in various parts of the Bible. So we asked him to pay attention to concern for the poor. Uh, The importance of women in the church is significant today. The Bible has tons of stories of women. In the 12th century, you might not. They might not show up in your illustrations. Except for to, Mary, maybe. Or. Maybe Mary. But today, you, you go all, all through and you see, well, I, I didn't realize there were so many women in the Bible, but of course there are tons of women in the Bible. So that would be another. Uh, concern for justice, um, hospitality. Um, and then we had some very specific themes, like the Jewish roots of Christianity, where you realize from reading the Gospel of Matthew the genealogy of Jesus. The point of that is Jesus comes from a Jewish lineage. Now, I also understand that somehow imagery from the Hubble telescope made it into this? Right, yeah. In the background, uh, in a number of areas, it shows up. Uh, I think probably the most dramatic is in the beginning of the Gospel of John, which begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you speak of the Word of God as eternal, And so he has a very abstract portrait of Jesus as the eternal word. And as a symbol of eternity in the background, he's got an image from the Hubble telescope of deep space. Is this your own translation, or did you all use a a current translation of the Bible? We used a current translation. Our parameters were it it had to have a Catholic imprimatur. It had to be in English. Uh, And so that brings it down to maybe 25 or 28 different translations. We really had only two choices, the New American Bible, which is what we've used in the liturgy, and the uh, Catholic edition of the New Revised Standard Version. And we chose the Catholic edition of the New Revised Standard Version because we thought it had the best chance for a long shelf life versus the New American Bible, which we were afraid was going out of style. Ironically, since we, 10 years after we started the project, the American bishops decided that we will stop using the New American Bible in our liturgy. So we were vindicated in that choice. Very good, very good. Now, how big is this thing? Uh, when you uh, put it all together, it weighs about 165 pounds. Uh, it is, when it's open, it's about uh, 2 feet by 3 feet. Because of the size and the weight, it's being bound in seven volumes. And medieval Bibles like this were in multi-volumes. Really? So and there wasn't a, a, you didn't have a Bible. It was seven volumes? Is that a traditional size? Uh, it, it, no. Uh, it, it, this was actually modeled on the Winchester Bible, which is the same size 
Um, Donald grew up knowing this Bible. It's in Winchester Cathedral. It's this size, and it had been bound in volume in uh, seven volumes. But you had medieval Bibles that were bound in four volumes or three volumes. But you just couldn't do it in one because if you opened it up, it would be it would split apart. You know, this makes me think also about how we hear these fanciful stories about the Catholics trying to chain up Bibles so that people couldn't get them. But I mean, a Bible in middle the Middle Ages was a huge. And very valuable piece of it work. took a long yeah, time too, right? To right, create. yeah. Bibles were chained up in the Middle Ages not to keep people from reading them, but rather to keep people from walking off with them. <laughs> they were so expensive and so valuable. If one person stole your Bible, then nobody could read it. So they actually chained them to make sure that nobody ran off with them. They were there for anybody to read. And in fact, we had vernacular Bibles long before the the Reformation. We had, are, there, are there chains on the St. John's Bible, by the no, way? No, <laughs> no. There's a good lock in a room to keep somebody from walking. Yeah, we have a, we have a lock in the room, yeah. but uh, you, anybody can come and see it. But speaking of which, you mentioned earlier in the program that this that this St. John's Bible was a, was a gift to the world. You right. know, and now, so here's the thing: is there's only one of them. You made one, so that's not that's a great gift for whoever gets it. Uh, did right. you give it to the Holy Father? I mean, who, <laughs> who gets this gift? Well, one of the nice things about creating something that's a gift, meant to be a gift for the world in the 21st century, is we can combine uh, the technique of making a Bible straight out of the Middle Ages, but share it electronically with the whole world. And so, through printing and electronics, we've been able to share it electronically. The entire Bible can be viewed on our website, stjohnsbible.org, all spelled out, no punctuation. St. S-A-I-N-T? Correct. J-O-H-N-S-Bible.org? Right. So each of the pages is reproduced there. Uh, But we've also been able to share it through printing. We have a sort of a coffee table size edition that's pretty accessible both price-wise and you can buy it at the the website or uh, order in a bookstore. We've also made these full-size reproductions, and it's a limited edition of 299 sets. And those have been uh, given, are being given or purchased for people for their private use or to go to libraries, museums, universities. Uh, One individual has given a set to Pope Benedict. Uh, another set is at the Morgan Library in New York, and, are and so on. Photo, are those copies the big ones on vellum, or are they on paper? They're yeah. on paper, and those are incredible creations of art in and of themselves. They're made with 100% cotton paper made in a mill in New Hampshire, uh, printed on a Heidelberg press with an infrared drying system. Uh, that's printed in Minneapolis. The gold leaf is real gold leaf, also laid down in Minneapolis. It's bound at a bindery in Phoenix, with Italian leather covers from Italy, and uh, so it's in itself, it's just an incredible. Piece but for of us art. common folk, you have this yeah. trade edition. That's we have available. the trade edition, and I guess the, the the point of all this is that you didn't create this to be a museum piece. No, not at all. That's why we didn't make a Gothic Bible. We didn't want to make an antique. We wanted something that expressed the values and the experience of 21st century Catholics who know that the Bible is the core of our our life. Uh, but we wanted to share it and make that statement to other people and share it as widely as possible. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, um, Father Eric, for for sharing this about uh, St. John's Bible here uh, at the Catholic Cafe. And, and remind everyone at home that you go to St. John's Bible, everything spelled out, S-A-I-N-T, so stjohnsbible.org. Thank you. Would you like to lead us in a closing prayer? Sure. We thank you, Lord, for the many good gifts you give us each day, but we thank you especially for the gift of your word, for the gift of your sacrament, for your life that infuses spirit in our daily lives. For all these gifts, we give you thanks. We ask that we be your heralds of your word and sacrament in life to all around us. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.